invite you to join me in John chapter 10. John 10 will be in verses 22 to 42. John 10, 22 to 42. Last week we were in John 10, verses 1 to 21. In those verses we saw where Jesus is the good shepherd. He's a good shepherd. He lays down his life for his sheep. He cares for them. This week as we come to John 10, 22 to 42, we will see just in what way he cares for them. We will see what that means for those who are in Christ As we work our way through this passage this morning, we will see a curious crowd, the candid Christ, and then the consequence. The curious crowd, the candid Christ, and the consequence. The first thing we see in verses 22 to 24 this morning is the curious crowd. These verses specifically serve to kind of anchor us in time to tell us when we are and where we are. Verse 22 starts out, Now it was at the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. It was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. Another name for the Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah. We're familiar with that. It's around our same Christmas time. So it's actually in December. So the passage we are in this morning takes place approximately three and a half months before the crucifixion. Jesus' time on earth is growing short. Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, is a celebration of Israel's victory over the Syrian leader Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was a Syrian leader who came in, who conquered Jerusalem, but he didn't just conquer Jerusalem, he desecrated the temple. He set up an altar to a pagan god in the place where God was meant to be worshipped. It was in the Maccabean revolt then that the Jews stood up, they rebelled in guerrilla warfare against the Syrians, ultimately driving them out and gaining the victory. So that is what is being remembered here at this time. It's the Feast of Dedication. That's what they are are celebrating here in Jerusalem. And it's winter. It's interesting, though. It doesn't just tell us when we are and, and where we are. We're in Jerusalem. It's winter. It's cold outside. It's the Feast of Dedication. But specifically, it tells us where this takes place in Jerusalem. Specifically, where in the temple. Jesus is walking in Solomon's porch. It's a covered rockway on the eastern wall of the temple. In fact, it is in this sheltered walkway, Solomon's porch, where the early church would gather in Acts. Specifically, we see it referenced in Acts chapter 3, verse 11, either all as late as Acts chapter 5, verse 12. This is where the church would gather in this covered, in this sheltered Solomon's porch. We're in Jerusalem. It's winter. 
It's the Feast of Dedication. In fact, we are in the temple complex in Solomon's porch. And then the Jews surround him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. The Jews surrounded him and said to him. It's interesting there, at the beginning of verse 24, the language is, is more forceful, it's more violent than we've seen in the past. In the past, it said, the crowds have come to him, gathered around him, but here it says the Jews surround him. They surround him. It's almost as if they have an agenda. This is our chance to trap him, to get him. Quick, let's surround him. Let's get him now. In fact, as you work your way through this passage, when you see their response to him in verse 31, you actually see that it seems that they do have an agenda. That is what is going on here. This is not just that Jesus happens to be walking by. Oh, look, there he is. Let's ask him a question. This is planned. This is purposeful. There he is. Let's get him. In fact, their question leads us to that as well. How long do you keep us in doubt? As if Christ hadn't been straightforward with them, unless he, as if he hadn't been honest with them, as if he'd been purposely leading them astray. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. See, the problem here is not that Jesus hasn't told them plainly. It's they simply don't want to hear it. This is not a genuine question. Jesus has been clear from the beginning who he is. Not just in what he has said, but in what others have said about him. Just a quick overview. In John 1.34, John, at the very beginning, calls him the Son of God. In chapter 1, verse 41, Andrew goes to his brother and said, I have found Messiah. Chapter 1, verse 45, Philip. We have found the one spoken of in the prophets by Abraham. Chapter 1, verse 49, Nathaniel calls him the Son of God. We're just in chapter 1, and this isn't even things that Jesus has said. This is what others who have interacted with him have said. They have come to this conclusion. When you get to chapter 3, verse 11 to 17, Jesus calls himself the Son of God. Chapter 3, 31, Jesus testify, John testifies once again, this is he who came from heaven. John 4, verse 26, a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman, he testifies to her when she says, when the Messiah comes and he says, I am he. Chapter 4, verse 42, the city of Sychar, the whole city, confesses that he is the Christ, the Savior of the world. John 5, 18. They seek to kill him because Jesus makes himself equal with God. They, these same religious leaders, they seek to kill him all the way back in chapter 5 because they said that he made himself equal with God. Chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. 
The problem here is not Jesus has not been clear. In fact, what he has, he has been so clear that even Samaritans, even an adulterous woman, even a blind man has understood, and yet these religious leaders have missed it. The problem is not that Jesus hasn't been plain. The problem is that they are not interested in the truth. And we see that here, even in their question, how long do you keep us in doubt as if it's Jesus' fault? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They don't want to believe. They just want to, before the crowd, justify what they're about to do. They want him to give an answer so that they can then stone him. So that they can take care of what they see to be a problem. They can take care of it right there, right then, and there'll be no issues with the crowd. If we can get him to say what we know he's going to say, then we can kill him rightly. Their goal is not to understand, their goal is to trap. They're curious, but they're not curious because they want the truth. They're curious because they have an agenda that they are pushing. They're curious because they are seeking to get what they want. They ask a question, and they know good and well what the answer is going to be. And they know good and well how they're going to react. Come to verse 25 then. Verses 25 to 38, you have the candid Christ. Once again, Christ answers very clearly. I find that interesting. We've seen all throughout the book of John that Jesus knows the hearts of people. All the way back in John chapter, the end of John chapter 2, he knew the hearts of those who believed. He's known from the very beginning. He knows the hearts of people. He knows what they are doing. He knows what they are thinking. And yet, he takes the time to answer their question. He knows their purpose. In fact, he calls them out on it before he answers their question. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you. You say that I have not been plain, that I have not been clear, but I have told you. And you do not believe. I told you, but you did not believe. Your unbelief is not because I have not been clear. It's because you don't want to believe. Your issue is not my word. Your issue is your heart. I told you. Not only have I told you, not only have I made clear, but even the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness of me. I have told you, and I have showed you. I told you who I am, and you didn't believe. And I have shown you who I am, and you still don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. I have healed the lame, I have healed the blind. I have fed thousands I've made wine out of water. I heal an official son from 20 miles away, and yet you still don't believe. I have told you, I have shown you, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Here Jesus connects back to the beginning of chapter 10, to verses uh, 1 to 21. Where in that, he has made very clear that his sheep know him. His sheep 
listen, his sheep follow. Those who don't are not his sheep. They are not with him. In fact, chapter 10, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by my sheep. They know. They see. They believe. But you don't. Because you are not my sheep. He's making a very clear statement about them here. They are not his sheep. They are not his. They are not, but verse 27, those who are. Again, back to verse 14. My sheep hear my voice. They know me. So he says here, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. There are two groups of people. We talked about this last week. There are those who believe, and there are those who don't believe. And that's it. There are those who believe, and there are those who don't believe. And there's nothing in between. There's no, I almost believed. There's no, I I, I kind of believe. You either believe or you don't believe. And Jesus tells this crowd, these religious leaders, you are not my sheep. I don't know you, and therefore you don't know me. But my sheep, those who do hear me, those who do follow me, those who do believe, I know them, and they follow me. Verse 28, and I give them something. Not only do they follow me, but I give them something. I give them eternal life. That they shall never perish. We talked last week how this is accomplished. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Therefore, he can give them eternal life because he lays down his life for them. He gives it to them. It is a gift. I give them eternal life. Not only that, but I give them security. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. I give them life and life more abundant. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hands. They are saved. They are secure. That's not enough for this crowd, though. Because this crowd doesn't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And so Jesus takes it a step further. Not only are they secure in my hand, but my Father, who has given them to me, goes back to John chapter 5, the first several verses of John chapter 5. The Father has sent the Son My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Really what we have here is double security. We are secure in Christ and we are secure in God. And then he makes a statement. And then he makes a statement in verse 30. 
You are secure in my hand. I have saved you. I have secured you. My Father who is greater than all, therefore there is no greater security. You are secure in his hand. And then verse 30, I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. Jesus here answers their question beyond a shadow of a doubt. In fact, he goes beyond their question. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, I am the Christ. In fact, I and the Father are one. Jesus has at several points throughout John identified himself with the Father in will and in understanding. But here Jesus takes it a step further. I am one with the Father in essence. The Father and the Son are one in essence and yet distinct from each other in person. Equal in power and authority and glory. And we can add to that the Spirit. One God. Three persons. I and my Father are one. We are one in essence. We are one in will. We are one in understanding. And therefore, those who are Christ's are secure not just in the Son, but in the Father. They are doubly secure. Paul picks up on this in a famous passage in Romans. I invite you to turn over to Romans 8 with me. Romans 8, verses 29 to 39. Jesus is making a very clear statement here. I and my Father are one. Because of who I am, you are saved. You are secure. Your salvation and your security are wrapped up in Christ's identity. It is because he is who he is that I am who he says I am. My Father who is greater than all. You are in the hand of the Son and your hand in the hand of the Father. And there is nothing that is greater. There is no power that can take you away. They can snatch you out of their hands. And that's what he says. That's what Paul says here, picking up on this language, starting in verse 29. In verse 29 to 30, we see salvation, right? His sheep hear his voice. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he called, whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. Notice that it is the work of God all the way through verse 29 and 30. It's not those whom he foreknew, they predestined. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. It's not those whom he called, they justified. It's those whom he called, he justified. Salvation is all of God. Christ's sheep hear his voice. They know him. They follow. They come. Christ saves them. And 
verse 29 to 30, follows all the way through to glorification. As Philippians 1 says, Christ will complete what he has begun. And then that ties into verses 31 to 39, the end of the chapter. Therefore, we are secure. There is nothing greater, therefore there is nothing that can snatch us out of their hands. What then shall we say to these things? If God, who is greater than all, is for us, who can be against us? If there is no one who is greater than God and I am in God's hand, then there is no one who can take me out of God's hand. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for, all, for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who will complete what he's begun. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Is tribulation greater than God? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Or sword? Are any of these things greater than God? Can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet even in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How can you say that, Paul? Because I am persuaded that neither death nor life Angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is greater than God. And therefore, none of these things shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what we see here in John chapter 10. The same truth. Our salvation and our security are wrapped up in the identity of Jesus Christ. Because he is the Son of God, I am saved by faith in him. Because he is the Son of God, I am secure in Christ. It is because that I and my Father are one that those who place their faith in Christ are saved and are secure. Christ is very clear here. He answers there. He, he confronts them at the beginning. The problem is not what I have said. The problem is that you don't believe. But I will answer your question. My sheep know me. And I give them eternal life. And I will keep them. They are in my hand. No one can snatch them out. In fact, they are in the hand of my Father who is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of that. In fact, I and my Father are one. You want to know who I am? I and my Father are one. That is who I am. I am not just a compassionate Savior. I'm not just a, a good Savior. I'm not just a powerful Savior. I'm a divine Savior. I am a divine Savior. In fact, that, that is the marvel of the cross. It's not just that God would take interest in man and send someone else to save man. It's that God himself would die for man. 
And because God himself died for man, because God himself rose again from the dead, I am saved and I am secure. I am who Christ says that I am because Christ is who Christ says that he is. So we come to verse 31, we see their reaction to this phenomenal statement by Jesus Christ. The statement which should lead them to faith, which should open their eyes. The statement that they actually already knew what he was going to say. They were fishing for it. They wanted it because they had an agenda. And we see them react on that. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. They understood exactly what Jesus has said here, which is why they are going to kill him. They got the answer that they were fishing for. They took up stones to kill him. They react in passion. In anger, they blow up. Anger that has been building. Verse 32, though, Jesus answers them. Jesus answers them. Many good works I have shown you from my Father. Good works that should have pointed you to me in faith, that should have opened your eyes to who I am. You've seen these good works, I've done these good works. For which of these works do you stone me? Why are you reacting this way? It's kind of a sarcastic question. But it's a question that's meant to grab their attention. A question that is, is meant to force them to, to stop reacting in their passions. To start thinking. What are we doing here? It's a good counseling technique here. Keep them talking. Make them think. Make them answer. And they do. They answer him. They don't throw these stones that they have, even though they're in the, the midst of this passionate response, doing what they think is right, what they've been wanting to do, with this anger that is built up within them. They pause and they answer him. For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. What they fail to consider is that it's only blasphemy if it's not true. In that statement, D.A. Carson notes the irony here. You, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus is not a man who makes himself God, but God who became man. You being a man, make yourself God. And the reality who stands before them is God who took on flesh. The one person in all of history who could make these statements. Jesus answers them again, verses 34 to 37. Is it not written in your law? This is taken from Psalm 82.6. I said, you are gods. 
If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Just his argument here is taken from Psalm 82.6, as I mentioned. In Psalm 82, verse 6, psalmist is writing. He's talking to the Israelite leaders at the time. And he refers to them as gods. They are God's representatives before the people. And he says, you are gods. And so if he, the psalmist, ultimately God, called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, so we know that this isn't wrong because it's in scripture. If he called them gods because they were representing God, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world that you are blaspheming because I said that I am the Son of God? If there is an example in scripture where God calls someone who is representing him God, then you cannot claim that I am blaspheming if I, who am representing God, who is God himself in the flesh, who is Emmanuel, God with us, it's not blasphemy to say who I am. I am the Son of God. That's who I am. As we read verses 34 through 36, it's kind of, you really have to stop and think through it. But I would love to see the face of these religious leaders having to answer this question. Jesus takes them right to Scripture. Here is an example in Scripture where someone who represents God is called God. They have to answer this logically. They have to think through this. Verse 37 then, through 38, Jesus calls them to believe. He invites them to believe. Which is phenomenal if you stop to think about it. After everything that they have put him through, the lies that they have spread about him, this trap they have set to try to kill him. In fact, he knows what they're going to do in three and a half months to him, and yet he still invites them to believe. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. Notice this is the third time in this passage that Jesus has pointed to his works. His works are meant to point to his identity. Look at the works that I have done. If my works don't testify of whom I am, if they are not the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus is here not making baseless claims. There is evidence. Look at my works. He's calling them to be honest. Be honest with yourselves. Be honest with me. Honestly consider the evidence. Don't just jump to, to, to your conclusion. Don't just take this idea that you have and keep pushing it. Pause. Don't react out of passion. 
pause and think. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with me. Honestly consider the evidence. Consider my claim. Look past your bias and see that I am the Son of God and believe. If you won't listen to what I say, look to the works that I have done. They're so blind that they can't even see. They don't even recognize the works of the God that they claim to serve so zealously. As you come to verse 39, you see the consequence of this conversation. Jesus has called for them to calm down. He's called for them to be honest, to think. He's invited them to believe, and yet they return to their same passionate, hate-filled response without thinking. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. They react. They think that they are zealously defending God, standing up for what is right, persecuting a blasphemer. Instead, they're seeking to kill the Son of God who stands before them, the Messiah, the one who they have longed for. They don't even recognize him. In fact, I think it's interesting that this exchange takes place during Hanukkah. Because they are acting no different than Antiochus Epiphanes did. Who sought to drive God out of the temple. Who desecrated the temple. And set up his own idols. They're no different because their God stands before them and they don't even recognize the Son of God and they are seeking to drive him out and to kill him. How can they be so blind? How can they miss what is right before them? Jesus retreats all throughout John, we've seen the perfect timing of God in the Incarnation. Everything happens exactly when everything is supposed to happen. We see that even here. They are standing there in the temple with stones, ready to kill him, ready to seize him, and yet somehow he gets out again. He escapes out of their hand. He went away again beyond the Jordan. Jesus retreats out of Jerusalem. It's interesting that he goes back to the place where John was baptizing at first, back to where his ministry began to prepare for the coming end. He, run, he gets out to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. But notice that verse 39 is not the only reaction. It's not the only consequence. Some do believe in fact, many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. 
The end of verse, John, of verse 41 points to John's successful ministry. John was killed. John lived a hard life, and yet John successfully pointed to Christ. We're here at the end of Christ's ministry. They recognize this is who John was pointing to. John didn't do a sign. John wasn't the Christ, but he pointed to him. All the things that John spoke about this man were actually true. And many believed in him there. Because of John's testimony. Even after John is long gone. Because he was faithful in his ministry. Even after he was gone, people still saw. Came to Christ through his ministry. As you come to the end of this passage, the main point of this passage is very clearly who Jesus is. It's the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The Son who is one in essence and yet distinct in person. Jesus is not just a man sent from God to save man. He is God himself come to save man. not just that God has taken interest in man. God himself has come for man. God himself will die for man. And the power of the cross lies in the identity of the one who died. Because Jesus is equal to the Father, death and hell have been defeated and salvation is offered to all. Because Jesus is equal to the Father, those who are in Christ are eternally secure in Christ. Because Jesus is who he says he is, I am who he says I am. I am saved. I am secure. And there is nothing that can snatch me away. Two points of application. First, if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, won't you do that even this morning? In fact, I would call you lately. Like, like Jesus was trying to get the attention of the religious leaders. He was trying to get them to, to calm down and to be honest with themselves. So I would call you this morning. Be honest with yourself. I'm not trying to force you to make a decision you don't want to make. I'm simply trying to get you to look to the word of God. To consider honestly the claims of Christ. Look at his works. Look at the evidence. Look at what he has done for you and believe. Don't take my word for it. Look to scripture. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. Take serious the claims of Christ and believe this morning and be saved. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, I would invite you this morning to come. Even as, as in just a second, we're going to close with the song, He Will Hold Me Fast. We're going to affirm the very truths that we have just looked at in this passage. And even as we are proclaiming the truth that he will hold me fast, you can come forward and you can have that same hope that we have.
those who are in Christ, I would encourage you this morning to rest in your security in Christ. You are not secure in Christ because you are a good person. You're not secure in Christ because you come to church every week. You're not secure in Christ because you give a tenth of your income every week or every month. You're not secure in Christ because of who you are. You are secure in Christ because of who he is. You did not earn your salvation and you cannot lose your salvation. Secondly, along that line, If you hear a message like this, if you see a passage like this, then your first response is not to rejoice in Christ, but your first response is to think, if I cannot lose my salvation, then I can do whatever I want. Then you need to search your heart. I would call you to be honest with yourself. Do you really believe? Because someone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, someone who has been given eternal life and security in Christ, that's not how they respond. Someone who understands who Christ is and who they are and what he has done. Search your heart. Be sure of your salvation. Trust in Christ. Secondly, be encouraged about the testimony that you are leaving behind. Even now, at the end of Christ's ministry, even as John is is off the scene, even still, the testimony that he left behind testifies and brings others to Christ. Are you leaving a testimony that even long after you are gone will bring others to Christ? I think that's an encouragement to us. Yet at the same time, it's a challenge, right? It's a challenge to live a life, to point others to Christ. And yet it's an encouragement at the same time that though we may not see fruit now, God's not done. God's working. And maybe we're just planting a seed now and 10 years after our death, something will happen that will remind someone of a conversation that we had and they will turn to Christ. It's not up to you. You just be faithful and let God work through your testimony.